This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. We know the air is unfit to breathe and our food is unfit to eat. We sit watching our TVs while some local newscaster tells us that today we had 15 homicides and 63 violent crimes, as if that's the way it's supposed to be. We know things are bad, worse than bad. I want you to get mad. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. And welcome to the broadcast for Sunday, June 3rd, 2012. 2012. You know, I've been asked to speak at uh, Idea City. Canada's premier meeting of the minds, um, Moses Neimer, the executive producer of uh, Idea City, and of course, the man behind Zoomer Media, this radio station, Vision TV, uh, invited me to speak about 2012. And so I will be doing that and we'll give you a few details about that uh, very, very unique uh, event that's coming up uh, June 13th, 14th, and 15th right here in Toronto. David Sursta is uh, the events producer. He'll uh, join me in just a few minutes uh, to discuss Idea City. Uh, Coming to you live from Saskatoon uh, tonight. Last week, live from Vancouver, we're doing the the Western, the Prairie Tour, I guess, of the Conspiracy Show. But anyway, tonight, uh, here nestled on the banks of the South Saskatchewan River in beautiful downtown Saskatoon. And uh, I have to catch a very early morning flight to Minneapolis tomorrow and then uh, home Thursday. So next Sunday on the 10th, I will be back in the friendly confines of 550 Queen Street and uh, the AM 740 studios. Good to have you aboard tonight. A little bit later, uh, in just about uh, 15 minutes time actually, James Henry Fetzer, Jim Fetzer, uh, will join us for the bulk of the program. He's an American philosopher, professor emeritus at the University of Minnesota at Duluth. And a very well-respected assassination researcher. He's uh, written uh, extensively on the uh, the JFK assassination, but he's also a 9-11 truther. He was the uh, the co-chair of uh, Scholars for 9-11 Truth. He's going to be along here shortly uh, to talk about 9-11. And he's going to talk about the, so the you know, there's a this huge raging debate, even within the 9-11 truther camp, about how the, uh, the North and South Towers uh, came down, uh, Building 7. Uh, there's, you know, what hit the Pentagon? Uh, were there planes? No planes. Was there video fakery involved? So uh, Jim Fetzer will be along uh, to discuss that at uh, considerable length. 
as I say, he'll join us for about uh, an hour and 45. And of course, we will invite you to the phones to participate. It is a talk show. So we need your voices. And I'll give you those phone numbers right now. If you want to get in, in on the discussion with Jim Fetzer, 416-360-0740 in the uh, Toronto, greater Toronto area, 416-360-0740 and toll free from just about anywhere, one 866 But first, a couple of months ago, I received an email from Moses Neimer, of course, the man behind Zoomer uh, Radio and uh, Vision TV, asking me if I would uh, present a, a, um, uh, a speech on 2012. Obviously, 2012 is uh, on everyone's mind. It's, of course, the year 2012, and we are approaching December 21st, 2012. Who knows what will happen, but uh, one doesn't refuse an invitation from Moses Neimer, particularly uh, to speak at something as prestigious as Idea City, Canada's premier meeting of the minds. And here to tell us more about Idea City is the producer of Idea City, David Sursta. David, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Very good, Richard. Thank you for inviting me. Now, this is, uh, if memory serves, the 13th Idea City. Yes, it is. We're going into our 13th year. Um, It's uh, it's quite a remarkable uh, uh, period of uh, uh, presenting this conference. Uh, Moses is, uh, uh, as you know, is the executive producer of this conference, as well as the curator and host. And uh, he's been doing it for 13 years now. And uh, we're really excited. This is going to be uh, 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 quite the uh, conference, uh, loaded with some incredible speakers and performers. So this is the the bar mitzvah uh, of Idea City. So Mazel Tov. Yeah, Mazel Tov. <laughs> so the, the take us back. The what was the genesis? What was the what? Why did Moses uh, create uh, Idea City? Well, you know, I think um, it, uh, if you go back to two thousand, uh, uh, it, it's really something that he really wanted to bring together. It was uh, loosely based on um, uh, it. Would actually actually transpired is. Uh, you might know the TED conference in California. Yes, and yes. Uh, it originally started as the, um, the first year of Idea City was actually called TED North uh, here in Toronto, uh, TED City. And uh, um, uh, the following year, Moses uh, renamed the conference uh, to Idea City, and since then, it's uh, had a really prestigious run of uh, in introducing not only uh, incredible speakers from across North America and the world, but also in Canada. Uh, some of those speakers have included Margaret Atwood and uh, um, Conrad Black and uh, an assortment of other great Canadian uh, uh, personalities. And, and people can find out more about it at www.ideacityonline.com. Tell us about the event. When is it? Where is it? And uh, how do people participate? Well, it's uh, on June 13th, 14th, and 15th at the beautiful Corner Hall, downtown Toronto. Uh, people might know it as the TELUS uh, uh, Corner Hall. Uh, it's part of the Royal Conservatory. Um, uh, we're going into our fourth year at this beautiful um, theater. Um, and the event takes place from uh, approximately around 8.30 until late in the, late in the evening, um, it's it's an incredible, exhilarating three days of speakers and performers, um, uh, wonderful food, 
Um, and we also have these legendary parties that take place at the Liberty Group restaurants across Toronto uh, that include the Spice Fruit and um, the Rose Water and the Sea Lounge. So it's, it's an incredible uh, an experience where you're engaging with these speakers um, and you're, you have that ability to uh, also meet with them, uh, get to talk to them, uh, you know, try out all this great food. Uh, and one thing that's really special about this year is um, our presenting partner is BlackBerry. And uh, when you get into this uh, conference, you, uh, if, you, if you're a full pass three-day holder, uh, you actually get a play, uh, uh, playbook tablet as well as a, um, a leather um, uh, roots uh, tote bag. So that's uh, quite special just in that. Uh, just having that, <laughs> getting very, very generous well. gift. Uh, absolutely, and and uh, again, how do people uh, get tickets? Do they did they buy? Well, did, did they buy one day passes, two day passes, three day passes? Uh, you know, you can buy. There's three ways you can do this. Um, you can uh, you can cu- you can buy the whole thing. Um, you can uh, uh, take take in the whole three days. Um, you can buy a, a single pass. Um, or you can even uh, engage in um, uh, what we call our three-day webcast home hookup or business hookup. Um, and uh, you can just simply go online at ideacityonline.ca. Let's talk uh, about uh, uh, some of the speakers of this year's event. It's, it's an interesting mix. You've got, you've got uh, musicians. You've got uh, like one of the world-class harmonica players. You've got yep. uh, the, uh, the Lemon Bucket Orchestra. Uh, talk about to me about some of the other presenters. You've got, you know, Preston Manning, a great uh, statesman. Preston Manning is quite unique. Um, he's been uh, on our stage before. Um, you know, we have Rex Weiler, who's the co-founder of Greenpeace. Uh, David Eggleman, who's a neuroscientist. Um, uh, we have uh, Mark Leponis on um, uh, alternative health. Uh, we, of course, have you who's going to be taking our stage, which we're really excited about. Um, and we have a really interesting uh, speaker as well that might be, uh, um, you know, very interesting to your audience uh, as well. And um, uh, he, he's, uh, he's been getting a lot of press recently uh, about the, uh, the Shroud of Turin. And, uh, he, you know, we're really looking forward to Thomas DeWeslow, who actually yes. uh, has basically said... Uh, you know, he's uh, creating a storyline that uh, authenticates the Shroud of Turin, which might be a real interest to people. Uh, that is one of my all-time favorite topics. So I am going to be front and center to listen to Thomas DeWeslow for sure. Yeah. And, uh, oh. you know, we had some great bands as well, the, the legendary Downchild Blues Band, uh, Leona Boyd um, as well. So it's, uh, it's going to make for a great, great conference. One of my favorite singers, Michael Casehammer. Casehammer. Yep. Uh, David Chilton, the the Money Man. Uh, a lot of people might know him. Great Canadian uh, author and speaker. Uh, Pico Iyer, um, Hod Lipson, who talks about 3D printers. Uh, you know Andre Picard on uh, Canada, the state of Canada's health. Uh, uh, Noel Bitterman, the founder of um, Ashley Madison, which might make for interesting conversation. Well. <laughs> Indeed, that's yes, very controversial. Now, there is yeah. also this theme of uh, you know of the environment. We've got people like Andrew Sharpless, uh, Sharpless talking about you know preserving our uh, the world's water. 
Yes, uh, he, he'll be. Yes, uh, Sharpless is the chief executive officer of Oceana, which is a global network dedicated to caring for the world's water. Uh, you might know his organization because of his association with Ted Danson. Um, and uh, we, you know, what we do is we break the um, the three days into um, thematic ideas that Moses has curated. Um, and it all kind of fits together, and it has a flow, and it starts from the beginning to the end. And um, uh, all these speakers, and you know, when if you're there for all three days, um, you'll 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 understand how they all flow together and come together, and uh, make for this great uh, uh, sharing of ideas. David Sursta is the vice president of events and conferences at Zoomer Media and the producer of I, uh, Idea City now in its 13th year, June 13th, 14th, 15th at uh, Corner Hall in Toronto. And uh, someone else I'm really looking forward to, I'm looking forward to all of them, but uh, Hod Lipson, and this is fascinating. This is a, a robotics engineer. Uh, yeah. Tell us about what he's talking about. Well, he, he's going to take the stage. Um, he, he's actually, this is his second time at uh, the conference. Um, and uh, uh, this time he's going to be delving into the concept of the 3D printer. And he'll be demonstrating that, and uh, and that in itself is very unique. Um, the tech and how that technology is actually going to be transforming the way we actually reproduce uh, everyday items. Um, and, and we're looking forward to that. How much of an opportunity is there for uh, the, the, the 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 public, uh, you know, that is attending the event, to interact with some of these great minds? Well, very much so. Um, every day we break out after the. Uh, uh, after each session into conversation breaks. And during this time, the speakers are very accessible and they're walking throughout the conversation break and very accessible to the individual. And then in particular at night when we, when, uh, uh, you attend the parties, um, that's really where, um, it's, it's very accessible. You're, you're meeting, uh, not only, um, uh, co-attendees, but you're meet, meeting the speakers and you're meeting everyone involved and it's very relaxed and informal. Um, and just really, uh, just a really great opportunity that you wouldn't find anywhere else, um, and, uh, and to allow you to be able to go and, and, and connect with people uh, in this sense. Uh, it's a tremendous event. Uh, I believe I will be speaking on 2012 on June 13th in the yeah. in the morning session. So uh, mm -hmm. looking forward to that. We're Got we're it. actually very excited about that, and, and uh, it's going to be a very interesting opening as well. Well, I've got to tell you, a little intimidating uh, sharing the stage with uh, with some of these uh, amazing individuals and a, a great honor to be invited and uh, looking forward to it. David, thank you so much. Thank you, Richard. Again, it's www.ideacityonline.com, and that's June 13th, 14th, and 15th, Kerner Hall. And uh, we'll see you there. All right. Why don't we take a time out, come back, and usher in Jim Fetzer. American philosopher, assassination researcher, here to talk about 9-11, planes, no planes, and video fakery. Back with more. Stay with us. The owners of the system are asleep. Now we can play. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Exploring theories, uncovering facts, and offering a different view of the universe. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett 
on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To speak to Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. All right, friends, let's get into it. Uh, Jim Fetzer, an American philosopher, professor emeritus at the University of Minnesota at Duluth, well-respected assassination researcher and 9-11 truther, joins, joins us from Santa Clara, California, where he's been attending the big conspiracy conference down there. Hey, Jim, welcome. Richard, thank you. I'm so delighted to be here with you again. And uh, great to have you aboard. What's going on now down at the uh, the conspiracy conference? I I've, I haven't caught that yet. I, I got to get down there one of these days. Well, uh, it's an annual event held here in Santa Clara, and they have uh, quite a list of speakers here. One of the most interesting other presentations uh, was by Jay Wiedner about how the uh, moon landing footage was faked by Stanley Kubrick using front screen projection. And one of the ways you can tell that it was done that way is because the foreground and the background are both equally in focus, which is a violation of the laws of uh, optics and would be impossible if it weren't being faked. Plus, he's made many other excellent Is Jim points, there? including oh. the vast variation in the temperature of the moon in, 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 in light and dark, or in 250 degrees Fahrenheit. Yeah, I'm here. We're having, we're going in and out, are we? Just Richard, a little do you want to call right. me on the other, on the other line? Uh, no, I think you want to call okay. me on the other line? Uh, well, I, I think... I, I'm only hearing you, in, I'm hearing you in and out, too. But he's pointed out that the cosmic rays would make havoc with the film and, and the whole idea, you know, that they were taking these photographs on the moon is preposterous. He's quite a brilliant guy. I actually interviewed him on my own show, Richard. You might like to get him on, so anyone who I've wants can find. Yeah. Oh yeah, isn't he great? Yeah, he, he, yes, but he was. He was fascinating, and and the whole idea that that Kubrick was essentially uh, um, sort of chosen by the Illuminati, uh, you know, to and to impart certain uh, memes into society through his films, and I guess. Uh, when he made Eyes Wide Shut, that was getting cutting a little too close to the bone. Uh, so perhaps, I don't know that Richard, you faded out on me, my friend. All right, listen, uh, David Gaskin back at the studio. Why don't we take a time out? Why don't you call uh, Jim back on his landline and we'll, uh, we'll go face to phone with Jim Fetzer here on The Conspiracy Show. 9-11, planes, no planes, and video fakery. Stay with us. Corporations, governments, and sometimes entire civilizations, what goes up must come down. And it lands on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Providing the evidence and letting you draw your own conclusions. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. And we are coming live to you from the beautiful city of Saskatoon. And, uh, you know, it says on the license plates here, uh, something like uh, where the, uh, I've been driving around a rental, you'd think I would have paid closer attention, but it's uh, where the skies are alive, or land of the living skies. And 
uh, if you've never been to Saskatchewan, particularly towards the southern part of the province where uh, it's, it's, it starts to flatten out. I mean, I was up in, in, uh, in Prince Albert, of course, the, uh, the home of uh, one of our prime ministers, uh, Diefen Baker. Uh, but as you get south into Saskatoon, you really start to appreciate the sky, how because you can just look from one horizon to the other, and it is quite spectacular. Uh, so, and this is my first trip to uh, Saskatchewan, enjoying it very much. Jim Fetzer is uh, with us. Uh, David Gaskin back at the plant on Five Fifty Queen. Do we have Jim Fetzer back on the phone? He's uh, he's working on it. We we, we tried to uh, to do a Skype uh, with uh, with Jim, who's at at, at the uh, conspiracy conference in Santa Clara, California. Uh, tonight and uh, sometimes Skype is just excellent and sometimes it's uh, it's a little tricky so we're going to go the old fashioned way and we're going to go uh, we're going to we're going to phone Jim and I think we may have him now Jim are you there Yeah I I'm here can you hear me I can. Let's try it again. We were talking about Jay Widener, and uh, uh, he's speaking at the conspiracy uh, conference down in Santa Clara. I had Jay on as well. Terrific guest. I, I was saying that uh, he was uh, uh, sort of intimating that uh, Kubrick was sort of the the Illuminati's filmmaker. Uh, they they took him in under their wing, and they wanted him to sort of impart, I guess, certain memes uh, into uh, you know the public consciousness, and that perhaps. Uh, when he made his final movie, Eyes Wide Shut, that may have been, I guess, uh, cutting a little too close to the bone for, for the Illuminati, and perhaps, he speculated, they may have offed him. What, what are your thoughts? Well, it's very curious. Uh, you know, I was not impressed with the film. Maybe I saw the wrong rated version, because, I mean, it seemed to me this was a, a movie that gave orgies a bad name. <laughs> he was taking advantage of the opportunity to get money to do what he wanted to do, especially the Space Odyssey 2001, and that they gave him ample funding provided he would fake the moon landings, which was being done for political purposes. The Soviets had launched Sputnik. The United States looked as though it was embarrassingly behind them in, in science and engineering. Uh, there were technical scientific reasons why getting to the moon would have been impossible, including the uh, Van Allen a a radiation belt. The, the space suits that these guys were wearing were completely flimsy. I mean, it's ridiculous to think that they would have been protected from serious exposure. Plus, Warner von Braun uh, conducted an expedition to the Antarctic to collect moon rocks that had been dislodged from the surface of the moon by small asteroids and brought down to Earth, which was no doubt the most convincing evidence for most Americans and even scientists because they studied these rocks and discovered they were genuine moon rocks. And the idea that they had been collected from the surface of the moon just never crossed their minds. And, and uh, uh, Kubrick, it's interesting, Very, I, I believe in, in his entire career he conducted one interview. Uh, so, you know... Very, very tight-lipped and um, a very secretive individual. Fascinating. Let's uh, let's uh, move on and talk about um, the main reason we brought you aboard tonight, and that is uh, 9/11. And you know, as you wrote in one of your recent blogs, it's 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 very difficult for most people uh, to even contemplate that 9/11 was an inside job. That their own government, if in fact we're talking about the government and not something sort of above the government, sort of a permanent oligarchy, uh, 
that, that, that a government would target its own people. And when, when, uh, when I have this discussion with people, I say, well, there is a long, a long a litany uh, of, of examples of how governments, the U.S. government uh, has targeted its, its, own, uh, its own citizens. What is it, I mean, why do people have such a difficult time believing that, that their government might target them, that 9-11 could be an inside job? It's the phenomenon psychologists describe as cognitive dissonance, Richard. It's like a, a, a mother who discovers evidence that her husband has been molesting their daughter. It's so traumatic. It's so traumatizing. She can't bring herself to do anything about it. Years and years later, when the truth finally emerges, and she's asked why she didn't do anything about it, she won't be able to explain it. But the fact is that when you believe your government is nurturing and supporting the public, the idea that they could arrange a phony attack and, and murder 3,000 of your fellow citizens in order to promote a political agenda, agenda is virtually unthinkable for a very large segment of the population. I'm sorry to say that that's exactly what did happen, and where Hermann Goring, even at the Nuremberg trials explain how easy it is to get the public, the people, to go along with whatever the leaders want. All you have to do is convince them they're under attack, and then you can criticize the pacifists, and you can, in, you know, manipulate them to do whatever you want. That's basically the purpose of 9-11, to instill fear into the American people, to make us amenable to changes in foreign policy, especially where now, do, you, do you think that we, we have never too, attacked any uh, nation that hadn't we, attacked us? Do you and think we become too preoccupied, though, with the method? Uh, there's, there's, that were in violation of international law, the U.N. treaty, and even the U.S. Constitution. It was a complete reversal and has turned the United States into the greatest aggressor nation in the world, along with our ally in the Middle East, Israel, where there appear to be many, many indications of complicity of the Mossad in in nine eleven. Well, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I don't know, Jim. I, I I do have difficulty with that one. But let me ask you about this. Do you think that we are too preoccupied with the method? In other words, how did they bring the buildings down? Was there a plane that flew into the Pentagon? Uh, rather than thinking about because you know in a, in a court case, yes, the method is is important, but also motive and opportunity. I think we've become too hung up on, you know, was it controlled demolition or wasn't it, uh, and all of these things. What, what do you think? Well, there are those of us who want to know, you know, exactly how it was done. We want the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. It's actually a fascinating scientific and intellectual challenge, Richard, to try to figure out how these things were done, because in some cases they were diabolically clever. But I'll just tell you, from beginning to end, the whole business was fraudulent. The whole thing was contrived and, 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 and even resorted to Hollywood-style special effects. Well, what, what are your thoughts on, let's start with the Pentagon. Was that a plane that hit the building? Because, I, I mean, isn't the evidence at this point, and, and listen, I, I, I tend to, to believe that, uh, you know, this was a case of someone, some rogue element uh, in the government either making it happen or letting it happen. But I think even despite that, I think the evidence is pretty clear. A plane hit the Pentagon. 
Well, it was no rogue element, Richard. I mean, this was actually a national security event which had the approval of the highest echelons of the American government. I, at this point in time, I have no doubt about it at all. There, were, uh, there was a whole pattern of indications about how it was being set up in advance. For example, in June, Donald Rumsfeld changed the standard operating procedure so that instead of area commanders having the authority to send planes up to interdict hijacked aircraft and even shoot them down if necessary. Now all approval had to go through the Secretary of Defense. During the crucial two hours these things were taking place, Donald Rumsfeld was nowhere to be found. Then, oddly enough, he pops up out on the lawn helping to carry a stretcher. Well, that's not where the Secretary of Defense is supposed to be. If this had been a real attack, it would have been absurd for him to have been there. It was a PR stunt to make it look as though he cared about those who were injured or killed. There were 125 legitimate uh, casualties of the Pentagon, but some three dozen of them, Richard, were accountants, budget experts, and financial analysts, where it appears that, uh, as most or many know, the day before Monday, Donald Rumsfeld announced that the Pentagon was missing $2.3 trillion from its budget. And I'm very confident that he directed the budget, the section chief, to have all his people brought to the West Wing, which had just been reinforced. I mean, there's so many remarkable features of all of this, Richard. The West Wing had just been reinforced massively. It was virtually bereft of files and personnel except for two entities. One was a personnel from the Office of Naval Intelligence who might have been trying to figure out what was going on on 9-11. And the other was these budget experts and accountants and all that where I can easily imagine Rumsfeld instructing them to bring all the documents and records they had for this missing money to that section, and then they were taken out and all the records destroyed. I mean, you got a $2.3 trillion problem, and poof, it's gone. It's as though Rumsfeld knew when he announced it the day before, which an experienced politician ordinarily would not do because they'd know reporters would dog a big story like this, and it would, as they say, grow legs, that something was going to interfere fear intervene and wipe from consciousness the awareness of that missing 2.3 trillion and he'd be able to waltz into halls of congress and ask for hundreds of millions more and hundreds of billions more in defense spending which is exactly what he did plus you see the pentagon had engaged in all these anti-terrorist drills uh, that morning that kept all the normal interdiction between the faa and NORAD, completely inoperative, the air traffic controllers had all these phony blips on their screens from these, these uh, simulated terrorist attacks. And in addition, Richard, once it went live, in other words, once that officially it was claimed that there were real hijackings taking place, what should have happened would be all those imaginary blips would be removed from the radar screens, but that didn't happen. They left those blips on the screen so that the air traffic controllers couldn't tell if what they were dealing with was live or memorex. These are powerful indications of uh, Pentagon complicity in the events of 9-11. Plus, uh, Dick Cheney was in an underground bunker. Most of us believe that he was actually coordinating these events on 9-11. And aide was telling him that a plane was approaching the Pentagon and telling him how close it was and asking whether the order still stood. Cheney got up, whipped his head around, and told him, of course the order still stands. Have you heard anything to the contrary? 
where the order had to have been to not shoot the plane down. Shooting the plane down would have been the obvious thing to do. You'd lose the passengers and the and the plane, but you wouldn't lose the personnel and property at its target. And uh, you know, it appears, nevertheless, that this plane was a was a was a phony uh, because we have two different trajectories, Richard. We have the official government trajectory of the what is supposed to be Flight 77 approaching the building at 500 miles an hour, barely skimming the ground at an acute angle to the Pentagon in a northeast trajectory. It turns out that that uh, speed at that altitude is not even aerodynamically possible because of what is known as ground effect, a packet of compressed gas beneath the fuselage that accumulates when a plane is in flight. Uh, it could not have gotten closer than a wing length. In this case, that plane has a length of 155 feet and a wing width of 125 feet. Couldn't have gotten closer than 60 feet to the ground uh, in terms of the laws of aerodynamics. And the idea that it would have hit these lampposts is completely preposterous. A plane hitting a lamppost at 500 miles an hour has the same effect as a stationary plane being hit by a lamppost traveling 500 miles an hour. It would have ripped off the wing. The fuel stored in the wing would have burst into flame. It would have snapped around. Its tail would have broken off. It would have cartwheeled into the ground. None of that happened. I mean, the whole story is preposterous, Richard. It's a violation of the laws of aerodynamics and the laws of physics. And when you examine the alleged hit point, which is uh, on the ground floor, it's about 10 feet high and 16 or 17 feet wide, there's a chain-link fence. There are a couple gigantic rolls of cable. There are two cars. There are unbroken windows all around the alleged hit point. And even no less an authority than Major General Albert Stubblebein, who has in the past been responsible for all United States military photographic analysis, gave an interview in Germany in which he explained that he had studied all the photos from the Pentagon and he had been able to determine that no plane had hit the Pentagon and that the explanation was very simple. There were no imprints from the wing, wings on the building. Now, the Pentagon has walls that are two feet thick. They're one, one foot of uh, concrete. Then there's eight inches of bricks and then four inches of limestone. Limestone's a very soft stone. And had a plane hit there, the wing imprint would have been quite distinctive and obvious. I mean, look at what we were given to believe happened in New York with the North and South Tower. We're talking about planes impacting steel that is far more... Uh, resistant, robust than anything at the Pentagon, and yet, nevertheless, they made those cutouts. How could that happen in the North, in in, in New York City, and yet have no indication even of uh, a plane having hit the building at the Pentagon? Uh, what about the debris, though, that we've seen on uh, uh, on near the scattered near the Pentagon? I mean, those pictures. Well, where did those? Where did the the the, the, the looks like a few well, that's a fascinating question, Richard, because that debris didn't start showing up for quite some time. In fact, we've got photograph after photograph after photograph that shows the clear, green, unblemished Pentagon lawn, no debris whatsoever, even after the two civilian lime green fire trucks showed up to extinguish the very modest fires that remained. Uh, that debris only started showing up later. And I have uh, conjectured, since it would have been so awkward to have enlisted men and officers rush out onto the lawn with this debris, that it had to have been dropped from the C-130 cargo plane that was circling the building. Uh, I, I regard that as highly probable. Uh, moreover, it's very interesting that while Rumsfeld claimed they had no warning, 
that a plane was going to approach the pilot of the C-130 told the BBC that he'd seen the plane approach the building. If he'd seen the plane approach the building, then surely he would have warned the Pentagon. And, of course, you had Dick Cheney's aide telling him a plane was approaching the building. So we know the government's lying right off the bat about whether or not a plane approached the building. The debris that was scattered there appears to have been from other sources. Certainly it didn't come from any plane having hit the Pentagon, Richard. For example, the most interesting piece is a section of fuselage that did come from a Boeing 757. Uh, It's a couple of feet long, but interestingly, it doesn't show any signs of having been involved in a violent wreck. It doesn't show any singeing or signs of having been involved in a fire. And when you take a closer look, you find that there's a, a piece of vine that is caught in this piece of fuselage where an attorney from Columbus, Ohio, by the name of James Hansen, actually traced this piece of debris back to a crash in Cali, Columbia, that took place in 1995. It was a kind of a slow-motion crash where the vines, which are distinctive to that area, ripped that piece of fuselage off, and they kept it under wraps until they needed it and put it out there on 9-11. Welcome back. Thanks for your patience. Uh, We are coming at you live from Saskatoon, experiencing some technical difficulties, uh, I'm assuming with the the wireless internet. Uh, Nevertheless, we soldier on. Jim Fetzer is uh, with us, JFK assassination researcher and uh, American professor of philosophy at the University of Minnesota, Duluth. And uh, right now we're talking about 9-11 and um, whether there was a the plane that hit the Pentagon. Jim, before the, uh, the technical difficulty, I was asking you about uh, all those images that we've seen that have become seared into our consciousness of uh, debris, ostensibly, we're told, from Flight 77 that are scattered all over the place. Where did those images come from if it wasn't Flight 77 that hit the Pentagon? Well, Richard, we have photograph after photograph after... Well, Richard, we have photograph after photograph after... ...that the lawn was perfectly clear and free from debris long after the alleged crash had taken place, including when two civilian lime green fire trucks show up to extinguish the very modest fires that remained. Uh, my conjecture has been that that debris was dropped from a C-130 that was circling the building, since it would have been too difficult to have enlisted men and officers carry the debris out onto the lawn. Uh, the most interesting piece of that debris, which substantiates my conclusion about this was uh, from a piece of fuselage from a 757. Uh, It was photographed in several different positions as though that meant there was even more debris. It showed no signs of having been exposed to fire. It wasn't crumpled or or, or ripped apart as you would expect from a violent crash. Instead, it's perfectly clear, it shows no signs of singeing, it's smooth, and it contains a piece of vine that's wrapped into it, which has been traced back by an an attorney from Columbus, Ohio, by the name of James Hansen, to a crash in Cali, Columbia, 
where a 757 crashed through a jungle setting where they had vines of this kind and it was ripped off. So I think the American people have been conned, Richard, and this was one form of fakery that was being employed to deceive us. Are we still connected on the phone? Uh, we are back. <laughs> Uh, what we'll do, David uh, Gaskin, back at the studio, if you want to call me at the uh, the hotel, and we'll do this uh, by phone when we um, when we take our next break. But uh, uh, Jim, I think most of that information got out there. What have, what are we to make then of the the um, the Barbara Olson uh, phone call? Uh, CNN commentator Barbara Olson, her, uh, her her husband, of course, I believe, is uh, the Attorney General uh, at the time. No, he, he was much he of what would, we he learned was, about the yeah. the the hijackers, uh, the Red Band. Bandanas. He was a he was a solicitor general. The red bandanas. The box represented... All of that supposedly came from. Thank you. Thank you, solicitor general. Yes. So, the. Uh, it was all yeah, rubbish, highest, Richard. Uh, I hate to tell uh, you, law enforcement were, official in the country. Those phone and, calls. Were, um, yeah, we all... yeah, those phone calls were all fake, Richard. Uh, How was that done? Uh, well, it, 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 the uh, he he gave uh, Ted Olson gave three different versions of the phone calls, uh, some involving cell phones, some involving air phones. But studies had already shown that you can't. Uh, well, studies subsequently to that by A. K. Dudney, a professor of computer science at Western Ontario who flew around the country with three different types of cell phones and discovered at speeds above 200 miles an hour and altitudes above 2,000 feet that they don't function reliably. And in addition... Passcodes, personal identification numbers, social insurance numbers. If they make you wonder how private they are, here's two more numbers. 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. Different views make great conversation. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To speak to Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. Live from Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, The Conspiracy Show, Richard Serrett with you along with Jim Fetzer, assassination researcher and uh, philosopher, American professor philosopher, talking about 9-11. Uh, planes, no planes, video fakery, uh, get on board, 
416-360-0740 and toll free from Maine to Minnesota, Thunder Bay to the Carolinas, 1-866-744-740. Uh, I think we finally solved our <laughs> our uh, technical problems. Thanks for your patience. Now, Jim, we were talking about uh, Barbara Olson uh, and the, uh, the, the phone call to her husband, Ted Olson, the Solicitor General at the time. And what struck me, of course, when we saw him uh, speaking on CNN about the phone call, just how, now I suppose one could argue he was in shock, but there was just a total absence of emotion uh, uh, when he was uh, talking about what ostensibly was, you know, the final phone call from his, his wife. Okay, well listen, yeah, the, Ted Olson gave three different versions of the phone calls from his wife. We have subsequently investigated all of this. A.K. Dudney is a professor of computer science from Western Ontario, took three different types of cell phones and flew around the country and discovered at speeds above 200 miles an hour and altitudes above 2,000 feet, they do not work reliably at all, including among the reasons that the cell phone relay towers can't switch. did not have functional cell uh, phones, uh, air phones on them at the time. So, you know, he, he really was, was uh, caught out in, in big lies here. Plus, the FBI has now confirmed that, in fact, he never received any phone calls from his wife, Barbara. Was there not recently a, um, a Freedom of Information um, request uh, from, I guess, the National Transportation Safety Board, which showed according to the uh, the logs that the cockpit door on um, on flight 77 was never breached apparently when whenever it's opened or closed there's a record of this it seems to me i read recently yeah. Did, what can you tell yeah. me about that yes well i think that's that's correct that's exactly from the National Transportation Safety Board, which it alleged had come from Flight 77. And when they subjected it to analysis, they discovered that it was for a plane on a completely different due, due east approach that was 300 feet in the air, too high to have hit any lampposts. And that when it was a, a second from the Pentagon, it was 100 feet in the air, which corresponds to the report from the trucker buddy of a friend of mine from JFK Research, Roy Schaefer, a fellow named Dave Ball, who was in front of the Pentagon and who told Roy how he'd seen a big plane fly toward the Pentagon and then swerve over it. So I told Roy I'd like to get Dave on my radio show to talk about it. Roy checked and, and reported back that Dave was reluctant to do it. I told Roy that witnesses like this are far better off when they get their story out in public, and unfortunately three weeks later he was found dead. And That's remarkable. That's remarkable. You know, I guess what's, what's, what's perhaps most damning of all is that when you have the legal counsel for the 9-11 Commission report and a number of the report's authors are basically now backing away from the report and saying that we were lied to. We didn't get the information that we needed. There's a cover-up here. Now, they're not necessarily saying that this was an inside job, but at the very least, they're saying... This was a whitewash. We need a new report. I think uh, George uh, Bush spent more money on his uh, um, uh, election victory festivities than he did on funding 
the uh, the investigation into the most serious uh, mass murder that ever took place in American soil. You're you're exactly right, Richard. Not only that, but he and Dick Cheney put off for 441 days, even or. Charles, were the the, the, the wives of uh, four of the alleged victims of 9-11. And then when it was eventually formed, they put in charge of it a man from the inner sanctum of the Bush administration, a fellow named Philip Zelikow, who had not only overseen the transition of the national security apparatus from Bill Clinton to George Bush, but had co-authored a book with Condoleezza Rice, and who, if you're prepared to hear this, had the, as his area of academic specialization before he entered government, the creation and maintenance of public myths. That's right. M-Y-T-H-S. Plus, Zelikow drafted the a, a version of the 9-11 Commission Report a year before he shared it with any of his associates. And as you're correctly observing, And they had no idea whether anything they had been told was true. Let's um, let's move on to the uh, the North and South uh, Towers. And and here again, there is so much uh, debate, even within the 9/11 community. Uh, to my mind, the, the idea that it's you know controlled dem- demolition has almost become a religion. Here I am again, someone who who believes. Uh, that uh, you know, the this operation was probably uh, an, an inside job, and yet I don't necessarily believe that it was the controlled demolition that brought down the North and South Tower. Uh, and I have become almost a pariah within you know the, the 9/11 uh, truth community because I've staked out that position. In other words, you can believe. It's an inside job, but you also have to believe it was controlled demolition. And, and I, based on the evidence, I just can't go along with that. Well, uh, if we're talking about the buildings per se, Building 7, which came down at 520 in the afternoon, which it was not hit by any planes, had no jet fuel-based fires, was a classic controlled demolition. All the floors collapsed at the same time, came back at about the speed of free fall, uh, you could even see the detonation going across the side to the top. There's that classic characteristic kink where they took out some major support. That building may have been the most robust ever designed by the hand of man, Richard. It was erected over two enormous electrical generators, uh, even in the case of the twin were hollowed out in the center, but in the Building 7, they used solid steel beams to ensure that it would never collapse. There were only modest fires in that building, and uh, in fact, while the claim was made that there were diesel tanks in the building, which was true, diesel is non-explosive and burns at a relatively low temperature. Uh, This is why Building 7 isn't even mentioned in the original 9-11 Commission report, and why the uh, NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Technology, had to 
into a whole separate independent report. We know, Richard, and this may come as news, that a fellow from the New York Emergency Management Unit, Barry Jennings, was actually in Building 7 that morning. He got a... coffee and half-eaten sandwiches. The fireman came along and said, we got to get you out of here. He, the explosions were going off. A stairwell fell out from under him. At one point, he felt himself stepping over dead bodies. He could them in the blackness, but he could feel them. When he got out, he gave interviews with reporters, some of which have not been sanitized and you can still uh, watch and listen to on YouTube. When the NISD finally got around to issuing its report on the, the Building 7, which Barry Jennings would have been in the position to contradict, he died about three days prior to its publication. Ah, so the uh, the death list continues and grows. Listen, uh, yeah, Jim. not the only. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, it's really quite something. And you know, back at with her infant, which she had brought to work with her that day, looked around and saw no signs of any aircraft, no pieces of airplane, no bodies, no seats, no luggage, no wings, no tail. In fact, he got the same thing from Jamie McIntyre, was a CNN reporter on the scene when he was asked by the anchor. He said, well, you know, you might think that a plane had crashed here, but from his close-up inspection, he found no signs, no indications of any large plane having crashed anywhere near the Pentagon. He would later be put under pressure to make a clarification uh, that anyone would be a fool to deny that a plane had hit the Pentagon, but most certainly his own eyewitness report at the time was no plane had hit the Pentagon. And Richard, you, you may be astonished to hear scheduled to fly that day, and from FAA registration records, we know that flights 93 and 175, the planes corresponding to those flights, were not deregistered or officially taken out of service until 28, 2005, which raises the questions, how can planes that were not even in the air have crashed on 9-11, and how could planes that crashed on 9-11 have still been in the air four years later? Plus, and this is in some ways even more astonishing, Pilots for 9-11 Truth has done a study of these aircraft based upon air-ground communications data and has determined that Flight 93 was in the air, but it was over Champaign-Urbana, Illinois, at the same time it was supposed to be crashing in Shanksville. And the So we have an awful lot of evidence that there was an awful lot of fabrication going on with regard to all four of the crash sites. One has to ask then, uh, what of the passengers? I mean, we have the, we have the passenger lists. We have a list of the, those supposedly who, who, who perished aboard uh, Flight 77 and, and uh, 93 and, the, and, and the, the planes that hit the North and South Tower. What, who was on board those planes then, and what happened to those people? Yes. 
Well, constructing a passenger list is like for an agency like the CIA, Richard. All they need is a typewriter or a computer screen and somebody who's imaginative and thinking up names. I had a member of uh, Scholars as long ago as 2006 who did a study in relation to the 19... Families that obtained money from the survivors' benefit fund was zero. And as you know, Richard, it's practically un-American to not take free money from your government. Already then, something was terribly wrong. And Dean Hartwell, by the way, who has a, a JD, has uh, published a book entitled Planes Without Passengers that you can obtain on Amazon. He's going to be one of the speakers at the Vancouver hearings, which I've organized for 15 to 17 June, just coming up in a few weeks, which are going to be live streamed, Richard. So I want everyone to know they don't have to be in Vancouver to take in what's going on at the hearings, which are going to cover all the controversial issues in relation to the 9-11 research community, including what did or That. Then we're going to have another session on fakery of the of the crash sites and the possible use of you know videos to convey false impressions. We're going to also then have uh, sessions about who was responsible and why, and in addition sessions about uh, how the media was complicit and covered things up. So you're really going to have the opportunity to learn a great deal about all the different dimensions that have been so controversial in the 9-11 community at this hearing, where each session has three different speakers. And I think it's going to be, you know, the one way that we can resolve these differences between us. All right. We'll uh, head on into a break. Uh, stay with us, uh, Jim. And we'll continue to discuss 9-11 planes, no planes, and video fakery. Coming to you live from Saskatoon, my name is Richard Serrett. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show, AM 740. When in doubt, blame the government. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740.
And I believe uh, we are back. <laughs> Welcome to The Conspiracy Show, coming to you live from Saskatoon. Jim Fetzer on the line, professor of philosophy, University of Minnesota, and also uh, assassination researcher coming to us live from Santa Clara, uh, California, where he's attending the Conspiracy Conference. And we're talking 9-11, planes, no planes, and video fakery. Now, Jim, um, the, the idea that, and I think what we're talking about here is some sort of holographic projection. Is that the idea that we didn't see mm-hmm. those planes hit the towers? We saw a holographic projection. I mean, to many people listening, you understand this is going to sound beyond the pale. Yeah, I think, uh, the, the, you know, it's not, it's not a conclusion that leaped out to me initially either. In fact, I was very resistant to the whole idea that there might have been a problem with the planes, with the flights on 9 11. I began to sort things out. I in, in, interviewed 15 different students of all of this. I looked at all their websites and the videos and all that. And what convinced me that something was wrong in relation to Flight 175, which allegedly hit the South Tower, was a, an argument by Joe Keith, was an aeronautical an industry engineer who worked with Boeing, who designed their shaker system, which was an on-ground device to shake a, a plane to see at what level of stress it would come apart, where Joe made the argument that if you go do a frame-by-frame advance on these films, the Hezerkani, the usual one you see, and the Evan Fairbanks taken straight up the side of the South Tower, you'll find that the plane passes its whole you know, a 500,000 ton building poses no more resistance to the trajectory of an aircraft than air. In fact, in the South Tower, the plane officially is intersecting eight different floors, Richard. Each of those floors has a steel truss connected to the core columns at one end and the external steel support columns at the other, and it's filled with four to eight inches of concrete. So each of those floors represents an acre of concrete. We know what happens to an airplane when it hits a small bird in flight weighing only a few ounces. It can puncture the fuselage. Well, imagine an aircraft in flight encountering one of these floors, a steel truss with four to eight inches of concrete. I mean, it would be completely obliterated. So the idea that this plane, you know, and and by Newton's third law, by the way, the effect of a plane traveling 500... miles an hour, that should bring, you know, some clarity of thought to what we're talking about here. The plane basically should have been splattered all over the building. It should have crumpled, its wings broken off, its tail, body seats and luggage fallen to the ground. The engines, which are practically indestructible, might have entered the building and some of its parts, but most of it would not. In fact, there wasn't an engine that was found at the intersection of Church and Murray Streets. Oddly enough, it was under a steel scaffolding. It was sitting on a sidewalk that was undamaged when it should have been shattered if, if something of this mass had hit at high velocity, but it was not. Now, Jack White, a legendary photo analyst from JFK Research who became interested in 9-11, discovered uh, Fox News footage showing a white van at that location. 
from a 137. I mean, it's ridiculous how many mistakes they made. And yet they counted on the gullibility of the American public to swallow it hook, line, and sinker. And by and large, most of us did. All right, let's go to the phones. Our media scientist, Nelson Thal. Good, good evening, Nelson. Yeah, Richard, how are you? I'm well, thank you. Yeah, it's a great topic, and uh, I want to commend and thank uh, Dr. Setzer for coming on and sharing his treasury of wisdom and knowledge. Uh, and just throw at him, Richard, the fact that, and ask him about, um, in the past we've been uh, talking, you and I, on air with retired folks who talk about two things. One, the um, 93 World Trade Center attack, the first attack on the World Trade Center, was a mapping operation for the mapping of the foundation so they could do 9-11. And I'm wondering about that from Dr. Fetzer. And second of all, it was always understood that the Yom Kippur War lessons of tank warfare led to the heavy R&D in hologram weaponry back in the uh, 80s and 90s, heavy investment in it. All right, let's start with uh, the, uh, the, uh, the attack on the Pentagon in 93, Jim, and whether or not that was basically an operation to map the foundation well, of the... Uh... There's, there's a fascinating... No, it was... ...story, actually. In, in uh, April of 2006, Zacharias Massawi, sometimes described as the 20th hijacker, was placed on trial for the penalty he should incur, whether it should be life imprisonment or death, where the, uh, the prosecutors were arguing that he did, if he had only come forward to explain what he knew about 9-11, that they might have saved lives. But there are multiple problems with that argument, the first of which is he wasn't convicted of having anything to do with 9-11. He was convicted of having been involved in the 1993 attack involving the blind sheik, he was equipped with a 10,000-volt stun belt during this hearing in uh, Alexandria, Virginia, and where the federal prosecutor and the judge had to know that this was a bait-and-switch, that they were trying him for having been involved in 9-11 for a pe penalty when he'd actually been convicted of being involved in the 1993 case. This is one of the most egregious miscarriages of justice of which I've ever seen. Scholars actually published an article about it at the time. I went back to the courthouse and made a statement there, but although there were with, with two others, There's Colonel George Nelson uh, and, and Phil Berg. Colonel Nelson is a retired U.S. Air Force air crash expert who has observed that of the millions of uniquely identifiable component parts from the four different crash sites, the government is yet to produce even one. Phil Berg was a former Deputy Assistant Attorney General to the state of Pennsylvania, and Phil also made a statement about this. But none of the cameras, and there might have been as many as 20 there, picked us up and not a word of what we had to say got out to the public except in the form of a press release, which I published from scholars. So if you go to 911scholars.org and, and look at the choices you have there on the, on the menu bar, go to press releases, you can scroll down to my discussion about this obvious charade. This was a show trial. This was a Soviet-style show trial with a guy who wasn't even able to speak because he was equipped with a
for political purposes. All right, let's say hello. Let's say hello. Oh, uh, Nelson, you had a follow up. Richard, I, uh, could you just uh, mention one other thing, um, Jim? Uh, Admiral Moore, uh, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and Benton Parton, long bef- back in the nineties, took out a full page ad in the New York Times. They put together. $75,000, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, claiming that TW-800 was shot down by a missile and the government is lying about it. Yeah, that appears to be exactly what happened, that TWA 800 was shot down over Long Island Sound, that many witnesses reported seeing the missile, which apparently was launched from a submarine, take it out. yet another in a long line of stupendous deceptions on the American people where, for example, you may recall before the first Gulf War, a young Kuwaiti woman appeared before Congress and maintained she'd been in a hospital in Kuwait and seen Iraqi soldiers dump babies out of incubators onto the cold concrete floor to die. Uh, and a wave of emotional revulsion swept through the country. But it turned out that she was the daughter of the Kuwaiti ambassador, that she had never been in the hospital, and that she'd been coached for her performance by Lawton and Knowles, a big PR firm in Washington, D.C. Yes, as if a Kuwaiti nurse wouldn't have the presence of mind to simply pick up a child on the floor and wrap it in a blanket. Uh, thanks for the call, Nelson. Uh, let's see. Bye-bye. Derek is uh, calling from Toronto. Derek, good evening, or good morning, rather. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Hi. Uh, since 9-11, one thing I do know is that uh, the U.S. is as far away from being a republic as it was, it was meant to be than it ever has. I just want to ask your uh, guest, since he is an American philosopher, is there a book out there can, that can detail what exactly America was supposed to operate under as a republic? How it should operate? Actually, that's an interesting question. Uh, I have addressed the relationship between morality and politics in a book of my own entitled Render Unto Darwin, which is subtitled The Christian Rights Crusade Against Science, you know, philosophical critique of the Christian Rights Crusade Against Science. The, the most defensible moral theory is a deontological theory that requires that you treat other persons with respect, that humans should never treat other humans merely as means, which is what we see in classic cases of crimes, robbery, murder, kidnapping, rape, where one person or group of persons is using another person or group of persons merely as a means. Majority rules, such as classic utilitarianism, utilitarianism advocates, is fine up to the point that you can violate individual rights. For example, majority rule is even consistent with having a slave-based society. If you had the right proportion of slaves, say 15%, serving 85% as masters, then it might be under utilitarian standards that that would bring about the greatest happiness for the greatest number, where you calculate that happiness by subtracting the unhappiness of the slaves, but where the greater happiness of the masters might offset it, and that might actually be the arrangement that it is 
in terms of classic utilitarian principles would be most justifiable, where the obvious problem is that it violates individual rights. So that majority rule is only really uh, uh, appropriate when you combine it with minority uh, rights, really with a deontological moral theory. And then as long as you're respectful of minority rights, to offer another illustration of utilitarianism absent minority rights, it might be if 100 smokers were taken at random, put on television and shot each year, that enthusiasm for smoking would dwindle, that there would be fewer incidents of lung cancer, cancer of the esophagus, of the mouth and tongue and so forth, that health insurance premiums would go down, people would live longer and happier lives, so that it might be the, the policy that would bring about the greatest happiness for the greatest number, but obviously it would be a corrupt act. to be putting a hundred citizens uh, on television and shooting them, which is just another way of illustrating that what you have with a majority rule is basically equivalent to a mob rule. I mean, a, a lynch mob after three young black men in Duluth, for example, for some in relatively innocuous offense like whistling at a white woman were strung up. And I'm sure that there was no action at the time that would have brought that mob more happiness than lynching those young black men. Today, of course, we grieve at leisure, but at the time that the impassioned actions of the mob brought about that result, which is actually consistent with utilitarianism applied to that context. All right, David in Toronto, thank you for the call. Uh, let's say hello to Dana in Connecticut. Dana, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Good morning. Yes, hi, gentlemen. Thank you for taking my call. Yes, Dr. Fetzer, I'd like to know, um, with all the tapes in, uh, you know, um, 1984, everyone's on camera today, it's just unbelievable that the Pentagon plane wasn't seen on any of the tapes. Is that, is that true, uh, your best recollection? Uh, yes, yes, yes. The Pentagon had at least 80 cameras, which would have recorded what actually happened at the Pentagon which they were unwilling to release. They did eventually release five frames, four of which were of a fireball. I suspect those fireball frames even were faked for the reason that when they began to excavate the part of the Pentagon that collapsed after 30 minutes after the original attack, and I believe that was arranged because it didn't look, you know, there wasn't enough apparent damage. So they wanted to make it look more like a plane had actually crashed there. When they excavated that, there were no signs in the interior of any massive fire or fireball. There's even on the third floor a wooden stand holding what a... appears to be an uh, Oxford unabridged dictionary. So I think all those fireball frames were faked. The one frame they have, the first frame, is conveniently labeled plane. And just above the gate mechanism, you can see the silhouette of what looks like a rather small plane, which is exuding a, a white plume. Uh, engineers and, and, and pilots have told me that that white plume is not the exhaust of an engine, but would be consistent with a missile being fired at the Pentagon. I asked Jack White, a legendary photo analyst from JFK Research, if he could size the image of a Boeing 757 to the tail. And it turned out that the image was more than twice as long as the plane shown in this frame, which means that even the Pentagon's own evidence contradicts the Pentagon's official account because the plane is too small to have been a Boeing 757. I mean, yes. the, the amount of chicanery here, fraud, Hollywood-style special effects, is simply un... Yes, I, can I uh, one more thing All right, about Dana, Bob Rosen? Unbelievable. 
All right, Dana, go ahead. Can I just, follow uh, up? just squeeze in one more question about uh, Olson? Barbara Olson. Um, oh, yeah, sure, sure. Many sure. people have seen her. She was supposedly on that plane. Um, have you heard that, too? They've seen Barbara Olson oh, she, alive yes. and well in 2012. She was, supposed to, yeah. she was supposed to have been on flight 77, but there are reports of her having been seen in Europe. Yeah. Uh, there was some right. some report about her being involved in some sort of financial transaction. He has since remarried a woman who goes by the name of Lady Booth. But there are a number of students of 9-11 who suspect that this may be Barbara Olson having undergone some kind of facial reconstruction and remarried yeah. her husband, right. Ted, right under our noses. Yeah. Do you know um, what happened to these people? That plane was filled with elementary school children. Do you know what happened? Do you, do you have any idea? I don't believe any of these planes really went into buildings or anything. Do you know what happened to these people? Well, uh, flights have not been any passengers on planes that weren't even in the air. Uh, it, it's easy to fabricate a passenger list, you know, using the names of people who are already dead or false identities or who knows what. what. What we have about Flight 93 that's most interesting is a report that it landed at uh, Cleveland where the mayor, whose name was White, came out and was interviewed by ABC News. He explained how the plane had landed there, had been taken to a distant hangar, how the passengers had been unloaded under great security. Mm -hmm. And it is the case that later on, the bodies of alleged victims of the hijackings were put online for viewing until it was observed that these were whole intact bodies and that all of these crashes had been so violent it was preposterous to assume that any of the bodies would have remained intact, at which point they were taken down. Yeah. All right, Dana, thank you for the call. Good to hear from Connecticut. Uh, while we're talking about 90, Flight 93, Again, I, I go back to these uh, these cell phone or air phone calls uh, that supposedly uh, came from uh, Todd Beamer of Let's Roll fame, and of course uh, uh, Mark uh, Bingham. Here we have uh, you know their loved ones claiming that they received calls from these uh, individuals. Again, how do you fake something like that, uh, Jim? Well, you know, there's a wonderful article about this by D David Ray Griffin, who is the world's leading expert on 9-11 that he published on uh, global research. So anyone who wants to follow this up, go for David Ray Griffin, global research, the 9-11 phone calls, all of which have been shown to have been faked. Now, some of them may have been made in advance as parts of a presumptive training drill, Bingham calls his mother. He says, Mom, this is Mark Bingham. I mean, now, if you were calling your mother, do you think you would need to give your whole name? I mean, that's a bit preposterous. Another recipient of a phone call said that it was not like a normal conversation, that she was being told these things, but when she'd ask questions, there were no responses, and there was a continuation of the one-sided conversation. Uh, what we know is that it was impossible to make... Uh, cell phone calls from those planes at those speeds at those altitudes which applies to all four of the flights where i reiterate 11 and 77 weren't even in the air that day and that for the 757s of which 93 was an example they did not have air phones that were functional on the planes at the time so they also cannot have been made with the air phones now, I want to move back. David Ray, David Ray Griffin has a great article about it. 
Yes, I, I'm familiar with uh, with that. Uh, I want to go back to the North and South Tower uh, because when we were discussing the likelihood that there were holographic projections involved, and um, this was in and around the time we were having some technical difficulties, so I, I wasn't quite clear. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sure. I, I want to yeah. go back to that because what what is the available uh, technology? Does it exist? Are we are we talking about something like you know this much heralded Project Blue Beam uh, to create these holographic images? Does the technology well, exist? Do we know well, how they would have pulled that off? Well, let me explain the argument here. Okay, Flight One Seventy Five wasn't even in New York City. Uh, I, I, pilots for Nine Eleven Truth have established, based upon their study of air ground communication, that while Flight One Seventy Five was in the air, it was over Harrisburg. have crashed into the South Tower unless the same plane can be in two places at one time. And we know that's not the case. So whatever is going on in New York is some kind of duplicity with a fake plane or whatever, something or, or video fakery. Now, the argument has been that this could have been done using computer-generated images or, or video compositing. Rosalie Grable has been an advocate of the use of uh, computer-generated images. Ace Baker of video compositing. Ace has a quite brilliant series out there online entitled The 9-11 Psy Opera, by the way, that I would recommend people take in. And he explains his theory of ghost planes, of how he believes that they could have uh, composited the images of a plane. But the catch with that is the following. Uh, that if they were at plane to be seen by witnesses prior to the broadcast, and yet we seem to have quite a few witnesses who are reporting seeing a plane prior to the broadcast. Now, Pilots has established that the plane seen in the video is, is traveling too fast to be a standard Boeing 767. It's traveling some 500 miles an hour at 700 to 1,000 feet where the air is three times denser than it is at 32 or 35,000 feet, where it can attain a cruising speed of around 560 miles an hour. But at this lower altitude, uh, where the air is three times more dense, the turbines can't suck the air through the engines fast enough, and they begin functioning as brakes. So it's not even aerodynamically possible that a standard Boeing 767 could be making the speed shown in the video. Number two... The plane is effortlessly entering the building. You can see some frames and half out of the building. And, and for this reason, the, 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 the building has sometimes been compared to the world's largest cube of butter. Because, you know, this is not a physical possibility. I mentioned before it was intersecting eight different floors of steel trusses and concrete you know, an acre of concrete per floor. It should have smashed on the side of the building, fallen apart, body seats, luggage falling to the ground. Instead, it just effortlessly disappears into the building. Third, I mentioned the equal frames for the plane disappearing into the building and passing through its own length in air. That's also a physical impossibility. Plus, we have the following considerations. John Lear, our nation's most distinguished pilot who owns 16 to 19 international speed records and it is qualified in every area of flight and maintenance for aircraft has observed that the plane shown in 
who's a 9-11 student from uh, Seattle, has noticed that the plane casts no shadow. In, in, in addition, in some of the footage, the left wing of the plane disappears. From some angles, it appears to be invisible. And a new student in a new report, a fellow named Richard Hall, has observed that the plane also does not reflect sunlight. So you have this question. You've got something that looks like a plane, but it's performing feats that no real plane could perform. It doesn't have strobe lights. It doesn't cast a shadow. Its left wing seems to disappear. It's non-reflective of sunlight. What could this possibly be? And the only hypothesis that seems to fit the data is that it's the projection of the image of a plane that looks like a plane where the image The building in violation of Newton's laws could pass through its own length in the same number of into the building in the same number of frames it passes through its own length in air, not have strobe lights, uh, not, uh, not cast a shadow, not reflect sunlight. I mean, this is the only hypothesis that appears to fit. So the question has become, and I concluded that it, it, the weight of the evidence, as long as you take seriously that there were witnesses who reported seeing a plane, and I found one witness, Scott Forbes, who had been working in the South Tower for three years. He was working overnight that weekend before 9-11 because of an un unusual power outage. He'd gone home Tuesday to his home when a friend called him to tell him to look out the window. He explained to me how he watched as the plane approached the building and then was swallowed up by the building. And also that when the, the and, which I thought were very credible reports, you can find my interview with Scott Forbes on the Real Deal archives, which are found at radiofetzer.blogspot.com. So as long as there are witnesses that you take seriously who saw what they took to be a plane, I think you can preclude that computer-generated images or video fakery uh, or, or, or uh, video compositing can account for the phenomenon. Now, what Richard Hall did was to study the 50 or so videos of the plane to figure out the trajectory. And he was able to, to use about half of those to confirm a trajectory that he also found in a National Transportation Safety Board study so he had the plane at different altitudes at different times approaching the building. Then he discovered that there was a military but that the military study corresponded to a plane that was 1400 feet 1400 feet to the side of the uh, plane that was reported in the NTST, NTSB study. And what he has reasoned, and I think perfectly appropriately, is that this military uh, plane was projecting an image 1,400 feet to its side, that the military plane was making a sound that the simulation, the image, the hologram was not, but that viewers hearing the sound would associate it with the image they were seeing and presume it was a real plane. That is quite an elaborate uh, scheme, to say the least. Uh, Jim Fetzer, American philosopher, professor emeritus at the University of Minnesota at Duluth. 
well-respected assassination researcher here on The Conspiracy Show. Telephones uh, still available to you at 416-360-0740, 416-360-0740, and toll-free from Maine to Minnesota and Thunder Bay to the Carolinas, one 740 4740. Uh, the senior custodian, I believe, at the North Tower, William Rodriguez, uh, tell me what he uh, testified uh, about. Well, I know Willie personally. He came to Madison, and it was only after he made a presentation and we were having dinner, and he told me how he watched as the sub-basements of the North Tower filled with water that I realized that the reason for the explosions in the sub-basements, and there was one in the North Tower and another in the South Tower, both of which were recorded by a seismic laboratory run by Columbia University, had been designed to drain the sprinkler systems of water. Because once they got the image into the building, and you see, they could not have done that with a real plane. They needed to get the image into the building to create the impression loaded in order to have a pseudo-explanation for the collapse of the buildings, when in fact they didn't collapse, when in fact no real plane could have got all the way into the building, when in fact a real plane would have had the explosion of its fuel as it was making contact with the facades of the North and the South Tower, but where they needed to perpetrate that fraud to have a pseudo-explanation for the destruction of the Twin Towers, which was actually being carried out by the use of very powerful explosives that were blowing the North and South Tower, turning it into very fine dust in every direction, which was necessary. I mean, th this story, Richard, is really fascinating. It was necessary to destroy these buildings using a novel technique because the Twin Towers were erected and surrounded by what was known as the bathtub, which was a dike to keep Hudson River water out. If any significant shattered the bathtub, Hudson River water would have flooded beneath the World Trade Center, the most valuable real estate in the world, entered the subway tunnels and the path train tunnels. It would have been a catastrophe. So to avoid that, they had to find a way to convert these two massive buildings into millions of cubic yards of very fine dust, which remained suspended in air, which did not collapse to the ground, which was eventually blown out to sea so that they could ensure the structural integrity of the bathtub. Now, the way in which these explosions, they, they, they wanted to get the planes into, all the way into the building before they exploded, the spectacular fireballs, create a psychological impression that this was a really big event. And then they wanted to use the claim that jet fuel had fallen through the elevator shafts to explain away these explosions in the sub -band. Two different scholars, Craig Furlong and Gordon Ross, have published an article entitled Seismic Proof, 9-11 was an inside job in which they established by using that seismic data from Columbia University, its Lamont laboratory, and comparing it with FAA and military radar data, they were able to establish those, sub, uh, those explosions in the sub-basement took place prematurely, 14 and 17 seconds before any contact of the alleged planes with the building. So, you know, the whole idea, by the way, of using the falling jet fuel was a bit of a stretch because the elevators in these buildings were offset every 30 floors. 
So you go down 30 floors, you get off, you go down another 30, you get off another 30. There were one or two maintenance elevators that went all the way from top to bottom, but one of William Rodriguez's fellow custodians was trapped in one of those. If there had been any falling... The problem of, of, of hitting a tower, which is only 208 feet wide, which is difficult already to begin with, though I suspect that if they had some kind of homing device, they could have overcome that problem. And I believe they originally planned to use remote-controlled drones, but it turned out to be impossible because Newton's laws wouldn't allow the drones to get all the way inside the building. So they had to fake it using holograms, get them all the way inside the building, and they had to time it to coordinate it with the explosions in the sub-basements. So this really turns out to be one of the most fascinating intellectual puzzles that I've ever been challenged to unravel. And, and, and the nature of the explosives in the sub-basement, are we talking nuclear? What are we talking that was able to cut those, uh, those columns? Well, no, what I'm talking about, the principal role of the sub-basement explosions, Richard, was to drain the sprinkler systems of water. Now, ah, okay. Columns, but the fact that Willie survived means to me that they were almost certainly not nuclear, even though I'm inclined to believe that mini-nukes or micro-nukes were actually used on the Twin Tower. It certainly cannot have been done with conventional explosives, which would have left massive chunks of steel and concrete all over the place, whereas, in fact, these buildings were virtually completely converted, you know, with some exceptions. Some par parts of them, some rather massive, were actually blown away from the buildings into other buildings. But for the most part, by and, uh, by and large, all and only the buildings with WTC designations were destroyed. And when it was all done, the Twin Towers were actually destroyed below ground level, unlike Building 7, where you had a pile of debris for that 47-story building that was approximately five floors or about 12% of the original height, which is what we know occurs. It's a classic controlled demolition with Building 7. What we had with the Twin Towers was a, a demolition under control but it was most definitely not a classic controlled demolition. It was done in a very sophisticated way for very powerful reasons. Yes, I don't know how you wire a 110-story building. I mean, that's never been well, done they, before. They're not wired. They're not wired. It's done by, you know, it's done by a computer initiation. It's like wireless, you know, Richard. You don't have to have wires. No, that's not true. There were no wires there. It is a nice point that you bring up wires, however. These aircrafts have, you know hundreds of miles of wiring in them, and then none of that wiring was found at any of those four crash sites, which is further corroboration that none of the planes that were alleged to have crashed on 9-11 actually did, which is the technically proper understanding of no planes theory. No planes doesn't, theory doesn't mean that there were no planes anywhere. For example, we know that the government's official account of the crashes that Flight 11 hit the North Tower, that Flight 77 hit the Pentagon, that Flight 93 crashed in Shanksville, and that Flight 175 hit the South Tower, those claims are false. So you could say no planes theory really means no officially designated planes crashed, or alternatively, no big Boeings crashed, the point being that all these crash sites were fabricated. All right. Becca is in San Antonio, Texas. She wants to talk about Building 7. Hello, Becca. Hey. Welcome. 
Okay, so yeah, Building 7 is the thing that I always bring up with skeptics, and they're like, what is Building 7? So I, I go to YouTube and I show them the video, and they like, they're just like speechless. They have like no idea what to say. None of that was obviously covered in the media. And uh, I really want to know, what is the official version for the story behind when um, Building Trade Center 7? But, uh I, I, I couldn't quite hear the last part of your question, but I, I mean, Building 7 clearly was a classic controlled demolition. There's a wonderful little YouTube by Anthony Lawson entitled, This is an Orange, about Building 7. I think that Building 7 was a, an add-on that wasn't a part of the original plan. It wasn't hit by any planes. It didn't have any jet-based fuel fires. It did have some diesel tanks within it, but those diesel tanks, diesel is non-explosive and burns at a relatively low temperature, so that, you know, Building 7 clearly was uh, uh, demolished systematically, and we know from Barry Jennings, who was actually in the building that morning, that explosions were taking place, a stairwell was blown out from under him, he felt himself stepping over dead bodies, which he couldn't see, but he could feel, and he gave a report to the... Silverstein talking about his conversation with the Ur fire commander and that verbal pause, that Ur, tells me that he knew this person under a different designation, where he told the fire commander that there'd been so much death and devastation, perhaps the best thing to do was to pull it. He said the fire commander, you know, uh, they made the decision to pull and we watched the building come down. Well, you know, there are lots of questions about why that was done. It did have the offices of the Security and Exchange Commission there, all the Enron documents, all the real documents, which you'd need for a court case, as opposed to electronic versions were destroyed when Building 7 went down. And a whole lot of investigations of uh, big uh, companies uh, on Wall Street also ended abruptly when Building 7 was destroyed. So I think that there were some, you know, powerful financial control of the World Trade Center. The first time it had come into private hands, just six weeks before 9-11, he fired the security firm that had been taking care of security since the buildings opened in 1970, and he immediately arranged for insurance against terrorist attacks. And because there were two planes purportedly, he claimed double indemnity. So that on an investment of about $114 million, he, he garnered some over $4.4 billion from the insurance company. And the, ins and the security company that took over, was, was it not managed by Marvin Bush? Well, this is very interesting. There is this Securicon company. There, were, there appeared to have been two companies that were involved, one's Securicon and one's Kroll. And the Securicon did have... According to Barbara Bush, a contract that expired on 9-11, and where Marvin Bush was a member of the board of directors, and who was a Bush cousin, remember W's middle name is Walker, so this was Wirt Walker III. But the Kroll Company, I think one of these was doing physical and the other was doing you know, surveillance cameras and all that. Kroll was an Israeli firm, just as the... Uh, CITS that had security at all four of the uh, all of the airports where the alleged flights originated was another Israeli company, and then we had, of course, the dancing Israelis. These uh, five young men who were at Liberty State Park in uh, New Jersey, across from the 
World Trade Center who were filming and celebrating as it was taken down when they were arrested because uh, residents in the area were troubled by their behavior. The, when the arresting officer walked up, the driver said, we are not your problem. We have the same problem. The Palestinians are your problem. They found uh, a lot of money. They found residue of explosives. They found box cutters. They found passports. ...days until an assistant to then Attorney General John Ashcroft directed their release. They went back to Israel, and three of them went on television to explain they had been there to document the destruction of the Twin Towers, which obviously provides or, or demonstrates foreknowledge. The assistant to John Ashcroft who directed their release was Michael Chertoff, who's a joint U.S.-Israeli citizen and who had become our first head of Homeland Security. I well, might mention... Yeah, there, are, there, are, listen, that, there are rogue, there are rogue that, elements, uh, uh, I guess, to be found uh, everywhere. But I, I do want to go back to... The uh, the North and South Tower uh, destructions, and again, sure. the the um, one of the interesting theories that has uh, that has surfaced in the last several years, uh, Dr. Judy Wood. I'd like to know your thoughts on on her theory that what brought the North and South Towers down actually was some sort of a particle beam uh, weapon. The, the this is a complicated question, Richard. I, I know Judy very well. Uh, I featured her 15 times on my radio shows in late, from late 2006 for the next uh, year or two. Uh, when I organized the, the, the Madison Conference in, in, here in 2007, I gave her an unprecedented three hours to speak. I published a chapter by her in the first book from scholars entitled The 9-11 Conspiracy. Uh, I invited her to speak in uh, Vancouver. Uh, uh, she never responded to the invitation. I invited John Hutchison, her associate, to speak. He initially agreed and then went silent because I think Judy cut him off. Uh, for whatever reason, uh, Judy thinks that I am not sufficiently supportive of her, which frankly is quite absurd because I did more. in those lean years before anyone had heard of her work. Her book, Where Did the Towers Go?, is completely brilliant in relation to its compilation of documentation and photographs of the effects that have to be explained. Uh, so Judy has made a, a marvelous contribution there. When it comes to her theory about the use of directed energy, however, there's a great deal of ambiguity and vagary. It states right on her book, this is evidence, where did the towers go, subtitle, evidence of directed free energy technology on 9-11. I even called into her on a talk show to ask her why she was denying that she had a theory when right on the cover of her book it says evidence of directed free energy technology on 9-11, which suggests to anyone that her theory is that directed free energy technology was used on 9-11, but she has denied she has a strongest claim she's willing to make is that some form of energy, directed energy, was used that went considerably beyond the explosive con capabilities of conventional demolitions, with which we would all agree, but where we're left in a bit of a quandary as to how she would, in a more precise fashion, explain what happened to the towers. Well, I mean, I think it's, we're all uh, speculating uh, to a certain extent, and I think what she's offering up is, is certainly 
uh, an interesting alternative to the controlled demolition uh, a theory. It's it, it may just be, uh, you know, the the, the beginning. Um, uh, it is it, something that needs to be probably pursued further. Uh, well, I'm 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 having representatives of all of these different theories, including of directed free energy technologies, speaking in Vancouver. Yes, tell me more about the, uh, the this Vancouver. The fellow by, with a chemical engineer by the name of uh, T. Mark Hightower about nanothermite. And we discovered, he principally, because he's the chemical engineer, that the uh, detonation velocity of nanothermite is, uh, the maximal detonation velocity of nanothermite is 895 meters per second, which is a serious problem for the claim that it was used to destroy the Twin Towers because it's a principle of material science that in order to destroy a material, uh, a, 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 an explosive must have a detonation velocity equal to the speed of sound in that material. The speed of sound in concrete is 3,200 meters per second. The speed of sound in steel is 6,100 meters per second. So you can't get there from there. Nanothermite cannot possibly have blown apart the tower. Now, whether it might have been used in a supplemental role is another question, but it cannot be the primary causal on buildings into very fine dust. Okay, so then if not necessarily directed energy, if not nanothermite, possibly micronuclear, what, what else? What other theories uh, might explain what brought those towers down the way they... they well, those are, those, are the, those are the principal ones right there. I mean, you know, uh, to be completely exhaustive, you'd have to talk about natural causes like tornadoes and hurricanes. Obviously, they didn't happen. <laughs> sure. Then conventional explosive, which won't account for the level of destruction because you'd have massive piles of debris and steel and concrete chunks all over the place. So then that brings you to something more sophisticated. Nanothermite sounds positive but can't do the job. Then you have to look at mini-nukes, micro-nukes, third, fourth generation, and some kind of directed energy weapon. So I think those are the two prime candidates. We have a senior research scientist from NASA. theories, and you can find his work online. He's actually done preliminary versions of this in relation to both Building 7 and the Twin Towers. His name is Dwayne Dietz, D-E-E-T-S. So I would say if you want to find a rather fascinating comparison of alternative explanations for both Building 7 and for the Twin Towers, where Dwayne Dietz is going to be speaking as the final speaker of the two sessions I have devoted to how the Twin Towers were destroyed, you can go online and find what he's already done about this already. All right. Eric is in Michigan. Eric, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Good morning. Good morning, Richard. You're the best. You are the absolute best talk show host I've ever heard. Thank you, my friend. Um, there were two elements that Judy Wood presented in her uh, discussion regarding the directed beam energy system, uh, and I'm, I'm sure Jim just overlooked it. She said that uh, the breakdown product of the dematerialization of the structural matter is, is uh, in fact, uh, you know, micro-sized thermite. And then she talked about a uh, rather <laughs> unusual uh, hurricane that came up the coast to Manhattan and then parked itself uh, off the coast, 
just coincidentally uh, present on the day of 9-11. And then late that afternoon, 5, 6-ish, departed out to sea. <laughs> and so she was saying that that was the energy source for what I suspect sounds like what Ronald Reagan was describing as a satellite-based Star Wars technology. Now, the reason I say that, Richard, is because was it STS-48, the space shuttle video where the astronauts are looking out over the uh, the Earth's horizon and they they see uh, a UFO and they point to it. They say, wow, look at that. And then about a second later, the UFO suddenly reverses course uh, drastically quick, and then here comes what appears to be a laser shot where the UFO had just left. <laughs> so I think there is evidence to support uh, Judy's theory. Well, let me just say, you know, I have invited her to come on my show to talk about the relationship between Hurricane Aaron and what happened on 9-11, and she has declined to do it. I mean, you know, I, I, I can go as far as I can go uh, with Judy and trying to, you know, promote uh, knowledge about and interest in her work, but for some reason she feels that I'm not being sufficiently supportive, which I find difficult to understand. So just to be clear, uh, uh, just to be clear, and Erica, and utterly fascinating. For example, the uh, the the jumpers from the towers. You know, I think that one of her strongest arguments is one she with which she begins her book about how all these people were jumping, and the question becomes why should they have been jumping? Where one of the fascinating cases is a guy who's hanging out the building and trying to get his wet trousers off of his body. That's quite bizarre, but if, 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 if they were being exposed to some kind of electromagnetic uh, passive resistance device, that it could be that they felt such, you know, this weird feeling on their skin that they needed to escape, that might be true. I mean, that's a, incredibly interesting. I, I wish Judy would just be a bit more sophisticated and forthcoming, you know, and if you can get more from Judy than I've been able to recently, I would be delighted because... As I said, I would have liked nothing better. And I made every effort I could to encourage her to come, but without success. Uh, Jim, give us a few more details uh, on uh, this uh, Vancouver uh, hearing. Oh, absolutely. If you go to www.911vancouverhearings.com, you'll get the whole program. It's also going to be live streamed at liveonlocation.tv. There are going to be uh, six different sessions, all devoted to controversial aspects of 9-11, three different speakers at each session. We're going to have an opening keynote address by Splitting the Sky, who's a magnificent native Indian who tried to arrest George W. Bush. It's going to be a great event. Jim, thanks for your time tonight. Appreciate it. Terrific, Richard. Thanks for having me on. Jim Fetzer. All right. Uh, thanks uh, to David Sursta from Zoomer Media and Idea City. And yours truly will be speaking there on uh, June 13th in the, in the early morning session. Hope you can uh, uh, drop by and, uh, and see me there. And uh, David Gaskin for a technical production back next week. Michael Corrin will be on the program, the author of Heresy, Ten Lies They Spread About Christianity. I'll be back in studio. 550 Queen for that one. No more technical snafus, I promise. 
Thanks for your patience. And in the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed, nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.